Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we're rewinding back to April 15th, 2015. This was originally episode 1557. It was called The Responsibility of Being Prepared. One of the reasons I began the Survival Podcast in 2008 and focused on preparedness and then all these spokes of the wheel that is lifestyle design coming off of preparedness. So we'll talk about entrepreneurship. That's generally not what you hear about on a survivalist website, right? But that's because stability in income and stability in purpose in life leads to a more stable life. And preparedness is about stabilizing your existence so that disasters are inconveniences versus disasters. So that's one spoke in the wheel, so to say. But I started with preparedness. And I'll, I'll be honest, there's a couple reasons I did it. One was it was 2008, and I looked at the landscape and said, eh, preparedness is about to explode. With some of the things that are coming, people are going to really be looking into this. And I've always been a prepper. So it was a natural place to start. But the other reason is because I was like, I understand what I'm actually going to be doing with this show. More than anything else, this is going to be my ability to do the one thing that I always wanted to do in my life, but I had not yet figured out how to do and actually make a sufficient income to dedicate my life to it. And that is teaching. I, I really did want to be a teacher at, at different points in my life. I thought about it in, in various different ways. I thought about just going to college and getting a degree in teaching, and specifically teaching foreign language and specifically Spanish. I, I, I really thought there would be a lot of ways that I could reach young people with that, and it would have a lot of you know upside on as far as lifestyle and what have you. But I realized, like all I ever heard about teachers is they're 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 heroes that don't wear capes and they don't make a lot of money, and I don't want to do that. And when I really looked at it, I said, well, you know, but it, what if you're the best at it? And it turned out that that didn't really matter, that you were going to get paid about the same as everybody else. So I decided that wasn't for me. And then all through my time in marketing and sales, I loved when I got a chance to teach. When I would go do a presentation in front of you know 500 uh, contractors on how cabling worked and how testing cabling worked, and I would sit up there at the front of the room and I would talk and I would watch people that had been in cabling for 10 years. There were good technicians Maybe they were project managers, lead technicians, things like that. But they really didn't understand what we were doing when we tested. They understood the fundamental basics. And they understood that pass was good and fail was bad and what to do to make fail go to pass. But when you said, what are we really testing for? When we look at near-end versus far-end crosstalk, they didn't really know. And I would get up and I would explain with metaphors and analogies that made these somewhat complicated engineering concepts very easy to understand at the technical level, for the technician rather than the engineer. And I loved doing that. And I loved when people came up to me and said, Jack, thank you. I, I finally get this. And I'm going to be able to, especially when they were like lead techs or whatever, and they were like, I'm going to be able to go back and explain this to my guys now. I've even had guys go, I actually knew everything that you said today, but I never heard it explained that way, and I didn't know how to explain it to somebody who just didn't get it. And I loved that. So when I came to this originally, to become a podcaster and to try to build it in a way that actually, you know, I was able to do, which is live my life doing it. I wanted to teach. And when I, when I looked at preparedness, I said, you know, this is what I need to build the core of my teaching from. 
And I, can, and I knew I was not pigeonholing myself. I could do anything from here. But it came to what I talked about in this episode, even back then, even, was that seven years earlier than this episode? And this episode's almost seven years old. That it's a responsibility to be prepared. It's a responsibility for yourself, for your family, and your community. All three. That, that, that it's, it's not something that weirdos do. It's something that responsible grown-ass men and women do. If you have children that you're taking care of and you don't have enough food to be able to feed them if a week goes by without you leaving the house, what the hell are you doing? Now, when I said this in the very beginning, when I said this back in 2015, people were like, yeah, yeah, I think I get it. But if you don't get it now, I don't know what to say. Because we all experienced this, didn't we? We all experienced various levels of being able to not go do the things we typically thought we could do. And significant shortages during this scamdemic, which is what it was. There was no reason for it to have happened. But you see, when you prepare, you have to realize there's things that happen for a reason. As in, there was no way to avoid them. And then there's the more common problems that occur. Things that happen due to malice and or incompetence. Which is mainly what we got for the last two and a half years. And I always said, from the very beginning, since 2008, the disaster is the thing. The aftermath of disaster is the danger, the way people respond to it. And think about what happened when all the supply chains got slowed or shut down in early 2020 in January, in February, in March. When they clamped down, when they said two weeks to flatten the spread, and that turned into two years to screw the economy. But think about the initial reaction people had. They went out and bought toilet paper so there was none left. They wiped out the beans and the pasta and everything else, things they didn't even know how to use. The reaction of the public was more dangerous than the disaster itself, even though it was probably the biggest disaster globally that we've ever seen in our adult lifetimes. It was still the reaction that was worse than the problem itself. This is why it is a responsibility issue to be prepared. A couple more things on this. Number one, um, when I go back into these older episodes, back when we were doing the history segments, we did the year that was the episode, I usually... Take those off of the rewinds. Today's history segment, back when we did it, you know, seven years ago, fit the episode so perfectly that I'm taking the front end of the episode off, but we're going to lead in when we go back to the, the year 2015 or, uh, with the year uh, 1557, uh, which is the year of the original episode. And we're going to talk about Spain and silver and inflation even when a nation is on a precious metal standard and how that works out and how that leads to understanding governments and understanding a need for responsibility. And then that's going to tie in to the responsibility you have as an individual or a family to be prepared so that you can take care of yourself and hence not be a burden on others when, not if, something goes wrong. The next is, when I looked at this episode back then, I didn't have a graphic for it. And I was like, you know what, I can make a graphic real quick for today's episode. And immediately, when I thought about this, a quote came to my mind from Richard Bach in Illusions, The Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah, one of the things in the Messiah's Handbook. And it's an incredible book. I challenge you to read it someday. Even if you think it's going to challenge your religious beliefs, I don't care what you believe, it will not. There's nothing in it that will take away from your religion. But in this Master's Guidebook, there's these little phrases and little sayings. And one of them, and I think it's the first one Richard, he writes himself into the story, reads when he opens the little guidebook. The best way to avoid responsibility is to say, I've got responsibilities. 
Do you understand what that's all about? We always can say, but I can't do that because I've got to do this first. Responsibility is about looking at the totality of the situation and having the willingness to prioritize what needs doing, where you're the most vulnerable, where you most need to improve your life or the stability in that life. Because this can be about building a business or this can be about making sure you have enough food to feed your family for the next month if something goes wrong. And what we say when we say I've got responsibilities isn't that we really have responsibilities. It's that I don't want the discomfort and the sacrifice that comes with what's doing necessary to either advance my life or stabilize my life. The best way to avoid responsibilities is to say I've got responsibilities, but that doesn't mean you should do it. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back to April 15, 2015, episode 1557, the responsibility of being prepared. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1557. We have the world superpower just ran out of money. We have the Geneva Bible is published. And we have the Chinese give the Portuguese the business. Um, I'm going to read the world superpower just ran out of money because it's going to make an interesting point as it relates to today's show and some of the misinformation and mismarketing that is done to people in the preparedness industry. King Philip II of Spain has been left a house of cards from his father. The truth was France has fallen apart, so the new king needs money to finance yet another war. With gold and silver arriving from the new world by the boatload, inflation is making everything more expensive, including the most important expense, troop pay. If they had been checking accounts in the 1500s, paychecks would be bouncing like rubber. The greatest nation in the world has just run out of money. The banks of Italy, Germany, and the Netherlands are in panic. There will be major restructuring of debt. Spain will run out of money again in 1560, to overspending. It, they had no illusion that they could eliminate it. While Hitler is coming over the horizon, you overspend. But the day of economic reckoning does come. Responsible government pays down the debt to reasonable levels as soon as possible. But if our government is in constant emergency mode, then our government is picking the pockets of our children and the pockets of our children yet to be unborn, uh, yet unborn if they manage to get born. Contraception and abortion blocks the future of taxpayers. Illegal immigration solves the economic problem that requires someone else to be holding the bag when it all comes apart. The Spanish troops got holding the bag in 1557, and they pillaged the villages around them. The black legend of Spain began during this period as the Middle Ages reared its ugly head once again. Alex shrugged, uh, FYI, Alex shrugged is a real Hispanic. Straight from East L.A., who has no trouble speaking of himself in the third person. He is also an Orthodox Jew, but he has been Hispanic much longer than he's been religious. Uh, and that's, of course, Alex who puts these together for us. Here's my take on this. Um, but you see, every government that went into hyperinflation did so when they went to fiat currencies and turned away from the gold and silver standard that is rock solid and never... Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Huh. That didn't happen here. So Spain and Portugal and lots of other countries went to the New World to get gold and silver, and they got ass loads of it to, to enrich themselves. 
And they brought it home, and silver mostly caused hyperinflation on a silver standard. While the rest of the world was using the Spanish coin as a global currency because it was a known quantity of silver that could be trusted with the Spanish mint mark, it was rock solid, but yet it caused hyperinflation. See, this is, this is where things all fall apart for people. People want a magic solution. Just put all your money in gold and silver and everything will be fine. You notice that Jack teaches you to put 5% to 10% of your net wealth into gold and silver as a way of diversifying your assets and assuring your wealth. Um, because gold and silver have track records of being used as currency, they have certain intrinsic qualities that make them valuable, and even when they've had these types of incidences, they've always eventually rebounded and, and come back to being worth something, but in the end they're commodities. The, the lesson here is that if you grow a currency faster than you grow an economy, you get inflation. If, if the currency's monetary velocity exceeds its need, you get inflation. People think that inflation is just simply more money. It's not. We can make more money every year. We can have a larger monetary base every year and have almost a net zero inflation if the economic structure in which the currency trades grows at the same rate as the expansion of the currency. That's the attempt of the Federal Reserve, to expand the currency at such a rate that we create a modest inflation, thereby incentivizing spending. That's, that's what they're doing. And, and they don't do a terrible job at it. Oh, God, Jack, look at the debt. Yes, I know, but that's the plan. See, that's the thing. You're the only one concerned about the debt because you have to pay it. The Federal Reserve has no problem with the debt because they don't have to pay it. Not, not, not for now, anyway. And as long as they can keep kicking the can and make it somebody else's problem, your children, your grandchildren, and the grandchildren of the illegal immigrant that you're bitching about right now, as long as they can do that, they don't care. That's their job. They figure somebody else will figure out how to do it again long after they're gone. You have to ask yourself when you start looking at the monetary systems of the world, why governments institute them and then tax them in the first place. See, governments could very easily, very easily if they wanted to, create a system where the government itself creates the, the, the currency and basically sells it into the population through the selling of government services. They, they would call a tax, but it would be a dollar-for-dollar dollar type net sum game. They wouldn't have to borrow money and then tax people at different rates and put the money out just to take it back in and have employees that they pay and then tax on the other end. And They wouldn't have to do all this if they just wanted a monetary system that functioned. Now, no government is responsible enough. Let's not misunderstand that. But no government is responsible enough to manage a currency system in any way responsibly. So they, they wouldn't manage that responsibly either, but they, they could do it. So why? Why do you create a system in which the government both spends money and taxes the money they spend that becomes income for their citizens? Control. Control. The entire monetary system is, is, is a methodology of control of the individual. It is the use of a symbol and convincing you that the symbol is what has the value rather than the underlying commodity that the symbol is represented against. In other words, if I sell you a service or I sell you a product, to make it simple, let's say I sell you duck eggs, because my farm produces duck eggs, and you buy those duck eggs, and you give me $7 a dozen for the duck eggs, and I turn around and say, you know what, I want ribeye tonight, 
and I do not have the space to grow a cow, and I don't have a cow. Even if I do, I don't want to kill my cow right now, and I want a ribeye, and I don't have one. So I go down to the local butcher, and I say, I would like a big, thick, fat, huge jumbo ribeye. I want something so thick it's going to cook perfectly, and I'm going to be able to cut it in half and share it with my wife. I don't want two thin-ass ribeyes. I want one big, thick one. How much is that? He says, that would be about $15, which is about what it would be. Well, I need to sell about two duck egg, two dozen duck eggs to buy that ribeye. And we think that the money bought the duck eggs and the money bought the ribeye. But in reality, the value of the eggs was used to purchase the value of the ribeye. And every single product and service in an economy functions this way. And the monetary unit is solely to allow the value of something that you either don't want to keep or want to do for profit but can't figure out how to store, and you don't want to have to sell it you know, piece by piece. You want to be able to do it and move on with life. The monetary unit only is, is, is exists to be a symbol of that energy, a symbol of that value. If people truly understood that, we would have privatized currencies long ago. We would have backed currencies with multiple commodities, not one. We would have ensured the value of that currency through diversification of its backing, And we would have wrested it away from the hands of the bankers, those in power, and governments long ago. But men, when I say men, I mean humankind, have been kept so ignorant of what I'm trying to tell you right now that they've been led to believe that not only is the money the value, but only government can convey that value. Because the mark on the coin changes the value of the coin, even if it's made of the same substance. That's my take by Jack Spirico, and that has a lot to do with being responsible. See, if you're going to be responsible and you're going to do things like invest your money, you need to understand money. Uh, you shouldn't be buying investments you do not understand. If you email me and say, I have $1,000, how much silver should I buy? I'm going to say none because you don't understand investing, uh, especially if all you have is $1,000. You should be keeping cash, and it should be your $1,000 emergency fund, and you're not even to your 30- or 60- or 90-day emergency fund level yet. You shouldn't be thinking about investing, and you're not responsible because you don't even know that you don't know. Okay, That's responsibility financially. Well, that's because if we run out of money, we end up in trouble. So most people get, even if they're not good at it, they get the concept of financial responsibility. Okay? And if you're sharing with this, this with somebody, this would probably be the point to, uh, to jump them forward to about 14 minutes into the show, and, and they can skip all the interest stuff if they don't want to listen to that. But yes, financial responsibility, we understand. So one of the things we make sure generally as parents, that we teach our children as they get through college or high school or whatever it is and take their first job, is you need to save some money. You need to have a bank account. You need to learn how to balance a checkbook. Most of us do this anyway, still today. It's screwed up in societies. We, we do this. And, like, you teach a child the basic concept of a budget. Like, okay, you're going to get your first place. Okay, if you're going to have a roommate, you have to understand at any time, point in time that that roommate could flake out on you. And if you guys are on the lease together, it's even if it screws up their, their credit, too, it doesn't matter. It screws yours up. So you have to have enough money to at least for a month or two get by if you have to pay all the bills. 
And you need to have a, a rainy day fund for that. And you need, and I don't, I'm not saying everybody does it, but I'm saying everybody at least discusses it. And when you tell somebody these are all things you should do, no one goes, well, that's extreme. That's insane. That's crazy. That's nuts. Right? That's something only crazy people on TV do. They say, it just makes sense. Because, because our society has become so dependent on financial capital. And, and notice that we've become more and more dependent upon financial capital as we've devalued other forms of capital. We've devalued generational capital. Very few families today, comparative to 1950, live in either multi-generational homes or at least multi-generational communities where grandma or grandpa are, for the kids by the time they're 10 years old, and when CPS wouldn't take them away for this, could get on their bike and ride over to grandma's. Right? We don't have that anymore. At least to, the, again, I know some of you are going to write in and say, I live just like that still today. Great. It's great. But we don't have it anywhere near the level we did in 1950 or 1900, which is what I'm going to take you back to in just a second. We don't have that generational capital. We don't have the experiential capital where a grandson goes to the grandfather to find out how to build a scooter instead of saying, Dad, can I have money to buy one from the store? Okay, we, 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 is every time we devalue one of the other forms of capital that are out there, the, the inter-social capital of the family unit and the community unit, when there's not someone to look after your elderly parent uh, because you have to work and they're in a point where they need a little bit of help, and that other person who's old enough to not be working anymore but still in good shape can go by and say, you know, I'll go by for a couple hours on Wednesdays when you don't have anybody else to do it. When that's not there, then financial capital becomes far more important so that we can pay somebody to do it. So as we devalue all these soft value forms of capital, as they would call it in, in, in traditional business, the, these are the things that a business would call their soft values. Instead of the, what's on their balance sheet, even in the form of goodwill, what, what they actually have is a tangible asset within the, the company, the experience of, the, of, their, of their employees. If I have a company where the employees have such a culture they formed within the company that it's easier for me to recruit the best talent, even if I'm paying the same or a little less than a competitor because people want to come there, I have a tremendous asset that you can't really quantify and put a number on. And financial capital becomes less important because if the company goes through a lean period, those types of employees are far more likely to be willing to share the burden. And they'll trust that if I'm running this company, look, we've got to pull everybody's payback 10%. We're going to do this for a six-month period, and we're going to put the money back into your paychecks at the end of that. Here's our and they, and they get that and they understand that. Incredible value. Right, And every time we take away a soft value, whether it's at a corporate level where employees really feel like the company gives a shit about them, or whether it's at a community level where neighbors really feel like their neighbors give a shit about them, we put a, a, a higher uh, focus on the financial capital. Because if nothing else, at least we can buy it. So it stands to reason that we would have fallen away from all the other forms of preparedness in our society today and focused only on financial preparedness. Because the mentality is, as long as there's money in the bank, there can be food in the cupboard. As long as there's money in the bank, there can be a roof overhead. But it's not that simple. Because sometimes the store's not open because a tornado blew it to the ground. Sometimes you can't get to the store because there's a flood between you and the store. Sometimes the paying the mortgage doesn't help because there's no longer a roof on the home. 
These are not catastrophic, you know, movie level events that they make, you know, the world is changed forever for everybody and an uh, asteroid hit level event. These are things that happen to real people every day. These are things that happen just like the last week to people in the Midwestern United States. This is something that happened to nine million people in the, in the, the financial disaster that was 2008 and 2009. But it, it, it came as a financial emergency. But in the end, it still led back to the roof over the head because they lost the house. But we get the money. So we teach a mindset, even if we don't do it well anymore, because we're even losing that. And why? Because, well, there'll be welfare. There'll be government assistance. There'll be unemployment. Right? There'll be, uh, Section 8 housing to live in. There'll be WIC to feed the kids with. I mean, the, but the, the government has moved into a position where it's like, no matter what happens, you might bump yourself a little bit, but we'll, we'll always pick you up off the ground and put you in the safety net and let you lay in there like a hammock. So even that has been curtailed. And it's only the people who have never been in that net. Or who, if they were, they had a job, they lost it, they got unemployment, it was a safety net like the trapeze artist has. They, they laid in the net for a second and said, okay, I can breathe, I'm going to be all right. They climbed their ass out of the net and got back up on the trapeze. Got a new job. Okay? Those people, and the people that have never really relied on the net, just simply known that it's there, those people are, are generally the financially responsible people. Because they don't want to lose what they have, and they know it's better than the people at the bottom tier who are subsisting on the scraps from the government's table. But even those people tend to at least understand, hey, Uncle Sugar only gives us so much food stamps every month, Uncle Sugar only lets us live in so much of a, of a house, and they have certain ways they manage their resources. And it's all because of financial mindset. Poor or not, at least it's there. And then you tell somebody, hey, look, you know, we need to do this with food. What are you, crazy? Uh, no, 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 no. Did you, did you, did you eat yesterday? Well, yeah. Are you, are you going to eat today? Yeah. Do you plan on eating tomorrow? Well, yeah. Would you be upset if tomorrow came and there was no food and you couldn't get any? Well, yeah, but as long as I have money in the bank. Again, if the roof's not on the home, maybe there's no home cook the food in. If the, there's a flood between you and where the store is, or there's an ice storm that shuts down your city for three weeks, this is a very recent storm. About five years ago we had that storm. The ice storm at its height ranged from El Paso, Texas to New York State. Fortunately for most of it in the path, it was pretty thin all the way through. But people in northern Arkansas and, and, and central and southern Tennessee all the way into Kentucky, where it was a little wider and moved a little slower, some of those people ended up in an ice prison, that's the best way to put it, for a week and some up to three weeks. Just was physically impossible to get out. So for those people having a 30-day supply of food and water and health and sanitation and all the things that make life livable, bearable, and relatively comfortable... Would have made a lot of sense, and the world didn't have to end, and the zombies didn't have to march. And by the way, nobody went in to help them because dead rescuers saved no lives. We'll get to that a little bit in a more in a bit. But that so it's not crazy. It's basically making it's actually crazy to not be prepared for these things, given that it's 
has a high propensity that it could happen to at least somebody. If you have life insurance, you're, you're more likely in the next 10 years to be stuck at home for a week than to die. Especially if you're, you know, 40 or under. Statistically speaking, there's no doubt. So this was the basic American mindset in 1900 that, that we had to look to the things that we would need to get by. And we had to make sure we had enough of them to get by. And, and, and here's why this has happened. A lot of we've covered of what's changed already. The, the fact that all the other forms of capital that help provide them have been devalued and to the mindset of as long as there's enough money, it'll be okay. It is one of the reasons they changed. But the other reason they changed is basic progress. It's, it's, it's harder now for a person to conceive of the fact that two to three days worth of food in the home might not be enough. Because they, they walk into an Albertsons, one store, and it's wall-to-wall food stacked. And they, they're actually pissed off whenever anything's out of stock. You ever see somebody that went to buy something, and like they could even get an equivalent, but it's not the brand they want, and they're all mad and fuming that it's not there? As though there's so much of it, it should just always be there. Like a shark's tooth. It doesn't matter that one fell out. It'll just pop itself back in. No, folks, those are politicians, not commodities, not resources. Resources don't work that way. But there's so much redundancy. Just-in-time inventory has worked really well for the purpose that it has to make money and to make sure that you can deliver to your customer what they're looking for when they want it in reasonable conditions so that you can have a transaction that results in profit for you. It's worked really well for that. And it keeps society relatively calm and patient, and it keeps society very much under the thumb of those in power. Because you need me. You need me. This is a method of domestication. If I want to domesticate ducks that aren't domesticated ducks, they're wild ducks on a lake, all I have to do is start feeding them at the same time every day. That's all I have to do. And if I feed them long enough that when winter comes they don't leave, I've got them. I've got them. And in a second generation, by handling the young, by pinioning or clipping their wings so they can't fly away and feeding them, I won't even have to pinion or clip the wings of the third generation. They'll teach them not to leave. And they'll do whatever I want because I control the resources. And as, as we've gone to a resource-intensive society, with all the resources being centralized, and, and the entire concept being, you don't have to go out and forage for a berry. You don't have to take care of your sick grandma. Just as long as you have money, someone else will, will grow you a berry and put it in a box for you. Someone else will see to your sick grandmother, you don't have to worry about it anymore. On some levels, these are some good things. They allowed people to do things they would have never had the time and energy to dream of before. But by losing touch with our wild nature, we've lost the concept that, well, someone has to do this, and there's only so much of it. When I was a kid, and we picked blueberries, nobody thought blueberries were infinite in supply. Because the spring would come, the blueberry bushes would flower, you'd take a walk up the mountain and go, oh, we're about three weeks away from the blueberries. A couple weeks later, you're kind of really wanting those seasonal blueberries. You go by, most of them are green, but there's kind of, you know, maybe you find a little bit of a blue one here. That one looks blue, and you pick it, and you eat it, and it's sour because it's, it's green on the back side. It was red in the middle and only blue with the part you saw, and you wait, and then, bam, they're there. 
There's a lot of green ones still, but there's a lot of big, blue, juicy berries. The whole community comes out and picks berries. And you pick 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 and you look in your jar and it's only a quarter full. And you pick. Finally, you pick a jar. You work your ass off for one jar. You take it back and dump it in the sorter, and every you have an older person with 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 maybe not the best eyes in the world to spot a deer a hundred yards away, but has been looking at berries a long time. It goes through and picks out all the green ones, dumps them in the in the thing, and the whole family's gone out and picked you know a couple hundred quarts of blueberries maybe in a day, and maybe next weekend you go back and boy, there's there's a lot less of them now. And then a week later, you, you know maybe it's time to start looking at the blackberry bushes and thinking they're next. Blueberries gone for the year. So when you're living that life, even though there's blueberry farms that stretch the harvest out much longer, you still are aware of how the whole thing works. And you begin to realize that there are always pinch points in supply. So you grow a garden and you put some canning stuff together and you have a basement and that basement's all the food from your garden from last year and it takes you through to the next year and you learn to live that way. This was 1900. This was 1985 for me. But as we've if we've gotten more and more domesticated as a species by those that centralize the thing, just like I can domesticate a duck by feeding it, okay? We have become so dependent on that system that we're not even aware of the natural system. Like your ducks don't understand that if you get laid off, you might have to start cutting heads off and calling the flock if they're not producing enough eggs to pay the bills for their own food. They don't get that. They, they, your, your animals don't get that they are, on one level, part of a productive system, but on another level, there's certain inputs that are required for them that if those inputs are lost, you have no choice but to call the herd. This is you. This is how your government sees you. Now, it doesn't call the herd the way it used to. You know, it's not quite as dramatic anymore. But it calls the herd by simply redistributing that which is available and reducing the quality of life of some individuals. And at least we're not completely domesticated where we understand that if we work harder, we don't have to be at the bottom tier. And that's what changed. That's why we've lost this. And it's, it's why, in reality, preparedness is basically simply responsible behavior. It is, it is no more irresponsible to not worry about budgeting than it is to not worry about having more than a couple days worth of food. They're both equally irresponsible. And just like your responsibilities increase financially as your family size increases, if you're the head of a household, so do your responsibilities to all the other needs of the members of your family. In other words, people would say today that, you know, regardless of what you think about Obamacare, that in this day and age to not have health insurance, if you can afford it, and it's become harder and harder to afford as they've made people do it, just saying. But let's just say you can afford health insurance. Let's say, let's say you have a job, and you're lucky. You still have a job that pays for your insurance. The only thing you have to do to make sure that your insurance is paid for is every year during your open enrollment, fill out a form and re-enroll your whole family. You have a, a mom, a dad, and two kids. A mom's a stay-at-home mom. You're living the dream. It's like it's 1955 for you. Dad makes enough money for mom to stay home and be a homemaker and take care of the kids. Company has a pension plan for you and has a health insurance plan for you. And all you have to do is fill out that form every year to make sure you keep your benefits and you pick your plan or whatever. Okay. 
if you had you knew somebody like that and they said, yeah, I could have insurance, but I didn't bother to fill out the form, you'd say that's completely irresponsible. You have kids looking. I mean, even if they don't get sick, what if you do and you can't? Like, so that's irresponsible because it goes back to money. So people get it. Right, and if you were that same person, and you you could have a quarter million dollar life insurance policy for twenty five dollars a month, and you made a reasonable income, and you had your whole family depended upon you, and now you don't have to fill out just a form; you have to pay for it. And someone said, so you knew someone like this, and you said, do you, do you have any life insurance to look after them? You go, if I die, man, my problems are over. I I I don't have life insurance. You you'd say, dude, you're you're completely irresponsible. I mean, you'd look down on a person that did it. You'd say, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, sure, if you've saved up enough money to self-insure with your wealth, that's one thing. But you're getting started out. You're young. This is irresponsible. There's certain things that you have to do economically as, as, as a family head of household to make sure that if something happens to you short, middle, long, or permanently, that those folks are looked after at least enough to get back on their feet. We all agree with that, right? Okay, if your kid doesn't eat tomorrow because you're too much of a lazy son of a bitch to get off your ass and have a little extra food in case something happens to that supply chain, you are equally irresponsible. In fact, I would say you are more irresponsible because it's so simple and it's so easy. There's no excuse not to do it. And I'm sorry that we live in a sick-ass society with nobody with enough brains to have taught you that when you were in the seventh grade where you should have learned it. But I'm telling you now, so get off your ass and make sure there's enough food in your house to feed your family for the next 30 days or you are an irresponsible son of a bitch and you don't deserve the family you have. How about that? That's what we should be teaching kids in seventh freaking grade in this country. But no, it's all theatrics. It's all, look at the doomsday preppers. They have a whole basement full of shit that they don't even know how to use. Look how crazy they are. Look with their night vision goggles, running around in the field, getting ready to defend themselves against the Illuminati. That's prepping. That is bullshit. That is bullshit. That is bullshit. Now look, if you're dead-ass broke and you can barely feed yourself tomorrow, I understand why you don't have a 30-day food supply. I really do. But if you have enough money to buy the next version of Call of Duty, and you are a grown-ass man with children, and instead of buying Call of Duty, you don't go out there and make sure there's enough food to feed your family for a few weeks if the system breaks down, you are irresponsible and you are not deserving of the love of the family that trusts you. It's not your fault in some level, because no one's probably ever told you this before if you're new to the concept. But it is far more irresponsible far more irresponsible to not make sure your child eats tomorrow than to not carry insurance. Both are irresponsible, don't get me wrong. But it's more likely, it's more likely you'll look at a hungry child due to some natural disaster than you'll end up dead. If we play to the averages, it's more likely. Both are possible, so we insure against both. How about water? Given that I'm about to give you a way to have water stored in your home easily for two weeks for at least basic sanitation, basic cooking, basic drinking, that will cost you no money at all except what you already pay for water, which is pennies, okay, to the tens of gallons. If you don't do it, you're irresponsible and you don't deserve a family that depends on you. You don't. What you do is if you're drinking that disgusting, gross stuff they call soda or pop, depending on what part of the country you're from, or in Texas, we call it all Coke. 
In Texas, we have conversations like this. You want a Coke? Yeah, what kind? Dr. Pepper, here you go. All right? So, you know what I'm talking about. Those two-liter bottles, if you don't drink that garbage, then you shouldn't. But if you do, fine. You've got your own source. If you don't, I bet you know somebody who does. So you say, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go and just ask people to save these bottles for us. We're going to rinse them out. We're going to fill them with water. We're going to put them somewhere in our home. We're going to save 50 to 100 gallons of water that way. Done. That's it. Now, how irresponsible is the modern adult who doesn't do that to make sure that your kids or yourself or your wife has water to brush their freaking teeth with tomorrow if you turn the faucet on and nothing comes out of it? How irresponsible do you have to be? And how irresponsible are you if you think, I'll just whip out the Amex, run down to the grocery store, buy a couple cases of bottled water if that happens? If you're going to buy a bottle of water, do it now. Don't do it when there's an emergency. Because all the other irresponsible people that aren't, that aren't prepared are down there trying to get some too, and you're taking what they, what they need. And you're all fighting over it, and then everybody freaks out, buys more of it than they really need at that point, and people go without. Because that's hoarding. Putting it in store in advance is not hoarding. These are, these are the realities, and what you need to understand is the limits of your faith often exceed the limits of reality in mere seconds. Your faith in the system, your faith in government, your faith in God protecting you, okay, those, those, those types of faiths are strong, very strong. And sometimes that faith exceeds reality. And when it does, it always happens like that. But I believe in God, and I believe God protects me. I also believe God gave you a brain, dude. I, I believe God gave you a brain. And God says, look, look at everything around you. Huh? There's lots of it right now. He, you know, if you're a Christian, he even gave you a book. If you're Jewish, you get the same book, most of it anyway, that has examples of how to do this stuff. Right? And I'm not Christian, so I'm not pushing anything on you. I'm just saying, if that's you, well, God will provide. Yeah, well, God will provide, but he's already provided. And it's up to you to use what's been provided to make sure you can provide tomorrow. This isn't hard. If you believe in government, right? I'm an, I'm an anarchist. I know it's hard to listen to me if you believe in the solutions of government. But there's, there is a certain functionality to government, and government does do a lot of things. Some of it, I'll tell you there's things I think government does well. It's just I think that we as human beings, if left to ourselves, could do them better But I'll still admit they do them rather well. But that doesn't mean they can always do them or always provide them or always get to you or always help you when you need it. And just like your faith in God can be exceeded by reality, your faith in government can be exceeded by reality. Got it? Your faith in systems, in companies, in corporations can be exceeded by reality. Your faith in the structure you live in, well, this will stand up to any storm. Eh, maybe not. Maybe not. And maybe the storm came with fire. Eh, or flooding. Eh. All right, see how that works? Your faith that everything is going to be okay can be exceeded by reality in seconds. The good news is we generally have years, if we're smart, to be prepared for that moment of reality. And then say, okay, now I have to deal with the reality that's on the ground. I understand your religious faith, because though I'm not of your faith, if you're, if you're a certain organized faith, I do share a certain faith in the perpetual reality that 
we are immortal beings and all will be okay in that immortality. But I'm also here and I'm alive and I'm on this planet. And I believe there's certain responsibilities that come with that. And that includes taking care of myself so that I can take care of others. And I believe that every major religion teaches that. Every single one of them. So I think it makes sense on all levels. And all we need to do is start looking at the basic needs of humankind. And in the modern world. These are simple. They're universal. Food, water, shelter, energy, health and sanitation, physical security, financial security. You notice I put financial security at the bottom. Do you know why? It's the one everybody at least accepts right now. The one that pe the two that people least accept is being needed that are easy to take care of are food and water. Food is so cheap right now. There's actually never been a time in history where you could buy as much food for as little energy as you can right now. You could say, well, there's inflation, Jack. Look at the cost of food or whatever. But no, 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 no. When you look at what it takes to get your hands on 10 bucks today and how much food, if you just bought the cheapest calories you can get your hands on, there's never been a time where so little labor, even with a normal job, can produce so many calories ever. And that's all thanks to fossil fuels. That's, that's how we got there. Not that long ago, men uh, at the bottom level of society worked 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day for enough money to buy a few loaves of bread, maybe a half a gallon of milk, and maybe a tiny bit of meat, maybe, and hopefully a little bit of fat in the form of either butter or oil. And they did it every day, every day, every day, because it took so much to produce this that it wasn't really possible for a lot of individuals to store very much unless they were in the production business themselves. If they were some sort of farmer and they were a farmer of their own land or land that they were at least leasing where they could keep enough after taxes or repayment of the lease, they could, they could store some. And they did because they understood the value of it. But for the average worker, it wasn't possible. Well, minimum wage right now, it sucks to be on minimum wage, but let's look at a little bit of reality here. Minimum wage on an eight-hour day makes you about 58 bucks. Okay, seven and a quarter times eight, 58 dollars a day. It sucks. I, I don't, I don't dispute that it's a terrible wage to be at, and that's why I think you should work hard so that you can find a way to get out of that as quickly as possible and make more money. That person pays no federal income tax, though they pay a little bit of. Um, Social Security, SSI, what have you. They're getting free health care at that point. I mean, there, there's just no. You're not, you, you, just, just say you're taking 45 bucks of it home. That's what you put in your pocket at the end of the day, 45 bucks. The average cost of a loaf of bread, folks, <clears throat> in the United States today, $2.37. That's if somebody makes it for you. you if you figure out what $45 would buy in either dried corn or pinto beans or or wheat, or what a peasant would have eaten a couple hundred years ago and taken care of themselves, the amount of food you can buy for the money that you earn even on minimum wage. There's never been a time where as little energy is required to produce as much food that can be put away. So the person that's making a reasonable living, by the way, those of you that think, well, we should have a, a, a much higher minimum wage, like, Norway has a, a much higher minimum wage. Yeah, well, a loaf of bread there is four bucks. So the, the funny thing about minimum wage is it becomes uh, basically the gauge and guide to the minimal subsistence 
uh, value of life, no matter what number you set it at. That's what it ends up being because as it's a minimum, that's what it creates. So we could set the minimum wage in the United States to $15 an hour. There'd be a lot of financial consequences, but five years from now, there'd be almost no change to reality, and people would be screaming $15 an hour is not enough, and people would be living by the same quality of life on $15 as they're living with on $7.25 today. And there'd still be the ability to make more, et cetera, agnosium. It's all an illusion used to control you, but we'll let that go for today. The basic point there is how simple it is to put away food. In relation to the number of hours it takes to put food away, because most storable food, for at least the basis of storage, is, is inexpensive stuff. It's the cheapest food that stores the longest. That's what makes it cheap. There's a reason a seasonal apple will cost you more for it while it's available than an apple that stores for six months. There's a reason that the apple that stores for six months will cost you more than a grain product when the grain can store for years. It's easier to commoditize that which is sustainably storable. So that's true of your home. So food is inexpensive. Water is, 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 is almost free to store you know, enough water to get by for a month. Not necessarily to take a shower with 50 gallons a person every day for a month, but to get by. To be able to at least wash your hands, you know, wash the parts of your body that need to be washed, to be able to clean your dishes, to be able to maintain sanitation, to brush your teeth, to wash your hair, to drink. It's almost free to do. Shelter's a little harder. Shelter's a little harder. Um, a lot of people, when they get into prepping, think, well, I'll just go get a tent. It's better than nothing. But, boy, you live in a tent for a while, you get an appreciation for your home really, really fast. And the best way to ensure the ability to have shelter is to have planning with other members of your community to, to bring back things like the generational and social capital with an understanding that, if something goes wrong for you, then you can come here. And if something goes wrong for me, I can come there. That's the, that's the best short-term measure. And that's a conversation with family that revolves around the fact that not everything may be super all the time. And a certain level of reciprocity understanding. Um, some people take this to another level. Some people simply have a second dwelling. And they call it a vacation home. And they take a tax write-off on it. And that can be good financial planning if you do it right. It can be a good investment for your future. And it's always there. It's not something I'm doing right now, but it is something we did for a number of years. We had a second home. In fact, the only reason we don't have a second home anymore is we decided to make that home a first home, and then we decided we didn't really want to live there, so we moved here. So that's something I'm actually looking at possibly doing again, but that is something that when somebody says, you don't understand, I'm working my ass off, I'm making, even, you know, you're making 15 bucks an hour. They, that's, that's a difficult, uh, nut to crack, isn't it? So I understand that. So you have to figure out what does work. But I'll tell you what is doable, is developing the knowledge, knowledge and skills and having the basic supplies to make a damaged home livable if it's not flat to the ground or dangerous. So that would be things like having plywood and nails around so that if your windows are blown out by a storm, you can at least put, put them up and keep water out of the home so you don't lose the whole house. Basic knowledge and understanding of the operation of something like a chainsaw. So that if there's a if there's a tree that falls on your home, you can clear it and repair the damage at least good enough until you can get somebody else to do it. A relationship with your neighbors that if that happens to you, they're going to help you and you're going to help them. These are ways you help ensure your shelter. And in the end, yeah, we own tents. 
I hate to say it, but if it came to it, I'd rather live in a tent than, than sleep underneath my car if my car's still here. Someone takes out my house, it may very well take out my car, too. So shelter is a little harder. It's a, in fact, it's a lot harder in some ways. And when you've lost your home, man, you, you, you've really lost everything. So hopefully you've got other things in place. So I'm not going to tell you that all of this is super simple. Because I would tell you the most prepared person in the world is never emotionally and spiritually prepared to have their home burned down in a fire. The, the people I've talked to that have been through things like that, whether it's a storm or a fire or whatever, it is one of the most spiritually and emotionally draining things that can ever happen to you. But I'll tell you what, every other thing that you have that you can rely on helps you get through it. Energy. So all of the pie-in-the-sky preparedness stuff is I'm going to have geothermal and solar panels and a wind tunnel and whatever, or I mean a windmill and whatever, and... That's not financially doable by many people. But a $50 inverter and some extension cords and some uh, adapter plugs uh, are very doable. It can be ordered on Amazon.com today, and you can learn more about that from Stephen Harris's uh, show on using uh, your car to power your refrigerator. I'll put a link in, in the show notes to that one today. It's very, very simple. Very, very simple. And then, well, then we can get some rechargeable batteries for just double A's and triple A's, and we can get uh, some phone adapters and stuff like that. If nothing else, we can keep the communications up. We can keep our, our, our smaller devices working and things like that. Then we can move into a little bit of backup power with some backup batteries. So I have, I have eight um, marine-grade batteries in my closet that can run my office for me for a day if they have to. And then we can look at a small backup generator. And with that alone, We get into a position where, you know, 30 days, we might not have the air conditioner running all the time. We not be, may not be the most comfortable, but if we're at without power, we're going to be okay. Especially if you live in cold climates, then you start looking at energy also from the standpoint of heat. And, you know, if you have a kerosene heater and some reserved kerosene, uh, or you have a, a wood stove or a fireplace and enough wood to get by for a month, if it was your sole source of heat, and maybe even cooking, then you, you start to make this all work. You know, I, I would always tell people, if it's feasible, use a gas stove, not an electric. It's more, even I don't care if you're on grid gas, it's more reliable than electricity. It cooks better. It's a higher quality product overall. Every day that you cook, you'll be glad you have gas. And if you are like me and you're not where gas service is available, but you put in a good quality gas stove and you put in a propane tank, it doesn't cost me any more to run my stove on propane than it would on electricity. It probably costs me less. Power goes out, I don't give a damn. I, to run the stovetop, I don't need power. To run the oven, I need the kind of power that you need to run your iPhone. There is a little electrical component to that, but that's really, really easy to plug an inverter into and, and, and run if I want to bake something, right? Having a grill and having, you know, if you have a gas grill and you're thinking, well, I'll use this to cook if I'm without power, how many tanks of propane do you have? Just for my grill. Not total, just for my grill. And even though I have a 120-gallon propane pig, but just for my grill, I have four propane tanks. And when one's empty, it gets refilled. The, the, this is simple to, to solve the energy problem for subsistence because we have things available that that guy I just talked about from, from 200 years ago never even could dream of. Could never even dream of. So we take care of that. 
health and sanitation. What are you going to do if you can't flush your toilet for a month? Oh, that'll never happen. It's happened to people. What about a week? What about a week without being able to flush your toilet? This seems like a really big problem. Well, you could put in a composting toilet. You could go the green solution. I don't fault anybody for taking these things to the next level and becoming as independent as possible to where, no, it's not possible I can't flush the toilet because I don't do it right now. I, I get that. But I'm also talking to people today that are suburbanites that live in a HOA that can't do it even if they want to. And, and they're like, oh, well, maybe I really hadn't thought of that. What would I do? Well, you go down to Walmart or your RV store and you get a whole bunch of the blue stuff that you would put into a, a, a portable toilet or like an RV toilet. And you get a great big package of hefty sacks, the big heavy-duty contractors. You don't want them to break. All right, You get a five-gallon bucket and a toilet seat and you reserve some toilet paper. And you go and you put the blue stuff in and you keep doing that. Because if you think I'll just crap in the backyard, how long is that going to last? A family of four for a week crapping in the backyard is a serious health risk. But this way, when systems are restored, you just put out a bunch of garbage bags. You probably can, if you're stored up enough, you can double bag them. And yeah, you can pee outside. So it's just poo. How simple is that? Yeah, you should have been told this when you were in seventh grade. I know it's not a comfortable conversation, but you know what's less comfortable than thinking about and preparing for it in advance? Daddy, I have to go poop. Where do I go? Can't go in the toilet, son. Hi, what do I do? I guess you're going outside by the bush. Daddy, it's been four days. There's a lot of it out there. That's a lot more uncomfortable. Flies buzzing around. That's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable. Sanitation is huge. Water is a big part of the sanitation. If you're on any kind of maintenance medication, you should never have three days left, right? You should always have a month in reserve of your maintenance medications if you really depend on them. Every type dia every type one diabetic I know is a prepper if they take care of their condition. They're, they're, they're acutely aware of their needs. Most of us aren't. So basic first aid, basic skills, knowing how to take, well, you know, if, if somebody gets really hurt, we're going to the emergency room anyway. Maybe you can't go. Maybe you can't go. Well, I'll call an ambulance. Maybe they can't get to you. There was a guy having a heart attack. During this big ice storm I'm talking about from a few years ago, somewhere in Missouri, in a city, the ambulance that was responding, because the phones did work, responding to 911, told his family, we can't get any closer to you. They were about 100 yards away. This guy was a big, fat guy. And they said, we're not coming any closer. This is it. You've got to bring them to us. They wouldn't bring him to them. And he, he died. He died. Because his family, I mean, if, he's, if there's snow on ice on the ground, throw something on the ground, strap his ass to it, and drag him to safety. They wouldn't take him there. They were indignant. I can't believe you won't come here. Folks, dead rescuers save no lives. And there are times when the people that are coming to help you, they won't be the heroes you see on TV. They'll be the humans that they actually are. They'll do the best they can under the circumstances that they're under. But if you're being unreasonable and I can save three lives or risk my life to save your one, I'm going to go save three. That's basic triage. That's the reality you live in. So having the health and sanitation stuff looked after. Basic first aid kit. Basic understanding of basic medical treatment. 
basic, go take a Red Cross first aid class. It's free. Knowing CPR, things like this. These are basic things. I know some of you were taught some of that stuff in seventh grade. You should have been taught more, though. Like, we teach first aid, but we don't teach anybody to build a first aid kit. A first aid kit, we have that here in the classroom. How about, why in health classes, when we teach kids first aid and CPR, don't we teach them to build a first aid kit to take home? As much money as we spend, we spend, in the state of Texas, we spend about $16,000 a student. Okay? $16,000 a student for kids in the fifth grade. It's preposterous that it takes that much money to educate a sixth grader, a fifth grader, a seventh grader. Somewhere in that monstrosity of money, somewhere along the way, we could be sending kids home with a proper first aid kit that costs about 40 bucks to assemble. Why aren't we teaching this? They're not going to, so you better. The number one thing that kills people in disasters in the world today is diarrhea. Yeah, diarrhea. Most of the time because people start shitting wherever they can, because they have to, it contaminates the water and give a person that's near dehydration the choice to drink contaminated water or no water and die of dehydration, and they will drink the contaminated water every time and soon die of the very high dehydration that they feared because they'll shit themselves to death. You want reality? I'm giving it. Again, this is what we should be telling 7th graders. They're old enough. This is what you should have been told in 7th grade. Number one killer of people in the world during disasters is diarrhea. Two dollars worth of Imodium saves a life in that situation. As long as you have some clean water to put in the other end while you're using the Imodium. Two dollars saves a child. Okay? I know you can't save every child in Haiti, but you can save your own. You can save the one next door. Two dollars. Do it. This is basic responsibility. This is basic stuff. Physical security. Did you know? Did you know this? When shit falls apart, some people in society are scum. They're the people that rape people, that kill people, that rob from people, that murder people, that assault people, that break into people's houses. They take whatever they can take, they can just have. And these scum are with us all the time. And your physical security is always at risk. But in the middle of a disaster, it's at greater risk for multiple reasons. One, the illusion of security falls. Okay? You think the police keep you safe. Somewhat of that is true and somewhat of it isn't. Police spend a hell of a lot more time filling out a report about a crime and pursuing the, 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 the committer of the crime after the crime than they do actually stopping the crime while it's occurring. Most of the time when you call 911, the crime's already happened, or it's in progress, and they're still going to take time to get there. If the guy's around the corner, ready to go, and take 60 seconds to get there, that's plenty of time for you to be dead 60 times over. Well, if it's the middle of a disaster, and he's up to his ass in a, in a flood trying to save somebody else's life, and he's the closest guy, you're waiting. Now how many times can you die before he gets there? Or your kids die? Or you want me to be blunt with you? You want me to be blunt and honest with you? How many times might you watch your wife and daughter be raped because you weren't prepared physically to, be, to provide your own security? Oh, that never happens. We live in a gated community. Great. 
You live in a gated community. That's the one that the responders will worry the least about. If I'm an educated piece of shit criminal, you're the people I'm targeting. I know you're the least prepared. You have the most stuff. You have the most stuff. You're the most gullible. You're the easiest to prey upon. I can use that gate to keep the, the first responders out. They're not going to worry about you. They're over in all these other areas you think are dangerous. They're dangerous too, but hey, I'm an opportunity. And I know, you know what I know the best of a criminal attacking you in that environment? I know none of you people talk to your neighbors. I know that if I get into your home, I can hold you in there for as long as I want to, and your neighbors won't think it's odd that you're not coming outside. You're, you've got to be responsible for your own security. I think the best way to do that is being an armed citizen, being properly trained and knowing how to use a gun safely and responsibly. And if somebody tries to kill a member of your family, hurt a member of your family, do damage to a member of your family, you give them a dirt nap. But if you're not willing to do that, do something. Do something. Have at least security protocols. And have different protocols at different levels. You might have a certain level of security you maintain when everything is code, code zero, so to speak. Right When it's code red, because all the systems of support are down, all the police are busy somewhere else, you better elevate your security protocols. I'm not saying to live in fear. I'm saying to live in reality so that you can address fear. So having a security plan for your home, whatever it may be for you. And financial security, that's important too. After all the, the mess is, is done and cleaned up, How derailed is your life, and how long is it going to take you to get back on track toward building your dreams? So having a good financial security plan as well makes sense. That's everything from money saved to insurances and everything else. You should be talking to a real financial advisor, not the majority of the people out there that call them that. I call them financial liars. This is how you know you have a financial liar. When they tell you you should have a 90-day emergency fund and they know you don't, and they want you to start investing in mutual funds, etc., your 401k, etc., tomorrow before you have your 90-day emergency fund. And most of them do, because that's how they get paid. That's how they get paid. When you find the one that says, oh, you don't have a 90-day emergency fund, let's make a plan to get you there. And let's do your investing plan after we get you there. Now you got one you can trust. There are one in a hundred like that. So you might have to do it for yourself, like all the rest of this stuff. This is basic preparedness. Let me, let me go over some of the common factors of these survival needs with you. Number one, each can be lost in seconds. You think of your home that you put so much time and effort into. Watch a video of a tornado tear one apart. Or a flood push one to the ground with a mudslide. Or a forest fire consume it. And that's a substantial structure. Okay, Your security can be compromised like that. Like that. Completely safe and carefree one minute. Literally begging for the life of someone you love the next. Willing to give your own to, to, to save it and not having the option. Water security can go away like this. When the, when the, the announcement comes on the TV set, don't drink the water. It's been compromised. You go, crap, well, at least I can boil it. And they go, ah, boiling doesn't work with this one. Shit. And you go turn the faucet on and it doesn't even comes out. You can't even wash your hands with it because some fool with a backhoe dug up the main.
your health and sanitation, your beautiful HOA neighborhood can become a cesspool. You're not immune to it because you don't live in Haiti. Your, your, your dependence on energy. Have you ever noticed when the power goes off and you get like the candles lit and the radio on or whatever and how, how many times you walk past the light switch and flip it and go, oh, yeah, yeah there you go. All of this stuff, all of this stuff can be gone in seconds. That's, that is the key to understanding the need to be prepared. That every single thing you need to either survive or live in relative comfort, every single one of them can be compromised in a matter of seconds. The next thing is, each can be set up with redundancies. There's nothing I've talked about that you don't personally have the ability to create some level of redundancy in. And if you can't create the level of redundancy that you think you should, but you can create something, do what you can with what you have. The next thing is, in the end, when you don't have one, you always have a problem. That's why there's survival needs. If I compromise your food, water, shelter, energy, your health, sanitation, your physical or your financial security, for even a short period of time, you have a problem. So doesn't it make sense to think that since this can happen, since this is common across the board, and since redundancies can be set up that I should. The next one is systems of support will always fail, at least for a time. There is no person in the United States of America that hasn't been through at least a brief blackout. Well, it could be a long-term one. Just saying. Sooner or later, every system that you think is invulnerable will have a failure. Most of the time, society has redundancies in place that fill in the gaps for us. Or the gap is short enough that even if we're uncomfortable, we can get through it. But even if you can get through it, do you want your family uncomfortable and miserable and stressed? Or do you want to realize, hey, I took measures to make sure that when this happens, there's at least something we can rely on to be a little bit better off. And, oh, by the way, now we can help Mrs. Etheridge down the road because we're okay. We're not freaked out about this. And we know that our neighbors are not ever all going to be prepared. So we can be the people at the front of the line helping instead of the back of the line asking for it. Because the systems will fail. And every system you think can't fail will have failures. The, the, the compounding effect is when there's multiple failures at the same time that begin to overlap. And that's big natural disasters always cause that. So the system of support that was the fire department is busy putting out a 12-alarm blaze across the street while your one house burns down. Sorry, dude, your house is burning down. That's just reality. I'm sorry, your house is just... Like, they'll even know... I'm sorry, can't help you. There's a riot. Somebody's stealing your car. Riot's more important than your car, dude. Sorry. So that's a failure of multiple systems at that point. Somebody's breaking into your house. Do the best you can till we get there. I'm sorry. That's happening everywhere right now. All of our officers are currently on calls of equal importance to yours. But somebody's out there. Yes, yeah, somebody's out there for everybody else too. I don't have any water. Nobody has any water. So the responders don't have water. This is this is how these things cascade. And I think that what would be great for every American, as tragic as it is to see, would be to stand at ground zero 
of a place where like a EF4 or EF5 tornado has recently been. The first time I did that wasn't really that long ago. I've seen a lot of tornado damage living in the south. But to see one of like the catastrophic ground zero events I saw as we drove through Alabama after the, the Tuscaloosa, Alabama tornado a few years ago. And I stopped the car and I just looked in both directions to the horizon. And it was about a one mile wide swath. And it, you, all you, all I could think to myself was if that house structure thing that's left of it over there was mine. And I had survived and no one had been injured and I came back to this. What would I even do to begin? And the answer was there would be nothing. I'd have to wait for an excavator to come and push everything away and see if I could get insurance money and build a new house. There was almost nothing left to fix. The helplessness that a person must feel in that state. And then understand that microcosms of that happen in individual lives all the time that can be prepared for. That that type of catastrophic loss can happen to your neighbor, but not you, but you can still be in a bad way. And the responders are helping them because they need it more. When If you were prepared, you could be helping them because they need you too. That's what this is really all about. The next is a fact. Dead rescuers save no lives. Hence, they see to their needs first. If you talk to anyone who's ever been a disaster incident commander, they will tell you that in a major disaster, they will spend one to three days setting up a base of operations before they send their first person deployed out to help you. They'll come up with their base of operations, their systems, their protocol. They'll analyze their resources. They'll assess who they have. They'll develop a protocol for how we're going to make sure everybody we send out comes back, how we stay in touch with them, how do we support ourselves. Major disaster. I could be moving 3,000 people into a few acres. Just the, not even not the, the refugees, so to speak, just to support people. I have to feed them. I have to see that their sanitation. You know, all those five things, six things we just talked about, food, water, shelter, energy, health, sanitation, all that stuff. Okay, I have to make sure that my people who are going to help others have those needs met. If they don't, my disaster relief effort can become a disaster unto itself. So therefore, I must see to their needs before I see to yours. In other words, until I make sure they're going to be okay, I don't give a shit about you. Not because I emotionally don't give a shit about you, because I logistically can't afford to give a shit about you. I'm doing all this for you, but I have to do this first, and then I'll come help you. Because I have to take care of myself first before I can take care of you. Guess what? That's how your life works. You have to take care of yourself before you can help your neighbor. That's why on the airplane, the stewardess tells you to put your mask on before you put it on your child. And I've listened to adults talk like brain-dead morons. Oh, they can screw themselves. I'm putting it on my kid first. Oh, that's great. So you put it on your kid. And then you pass out your own drool, sit there with low oxygen levels and die, and your kid freaks the hell out, yanks their mask out, climbs on top of you and dies too. Good job, dumbass. And that's how most Americans are living their lives right now. I hear it all the time from parents. I love my kids so much I would die for them. Great, I hope you care enough to live for them. That's really kind of more important, isn't it? It's really more important. It's sentimentality over rational, logical thinking. 
Well, I'm telling you, the people that, that do this for a living, that save your ass for a living, can't afford to be stupid. And they put their mask on first. And they should. It's their job. And that means there's a lag between the time you end up in trouble and the time that anybody's coming to help you. And you need to see to it for yourself. That's the commonalities. So what do you do about all this? If you just, like, finally you feel like, oh, look at the big gangrene wound exposed on my arm I didn't know I had. Shit, do I cut the arm off? No, you fix it. It's not hard. Put together a 72-hour kit for every member of your family. It doesn't have to have night vision goggles and an AR-15 in it. It has to have all the things you need that if you went somewhere else, you could at least support yourself for three days. Food and water, some level of provisions for security, changes of clothes, some means of communication, documentation that tells you how to get in touch with people, a basic kit. If you were going to go to a neighbor's house who was going to give you a cot to sleep on in a dark basement with no running water and no electricity, and the only thing you basically had was a place to be, If your 72-hour kit would get you through three days of that, in as much relative comfort as you could be in, it's damn good. It's a B plus. Now, if you could take it out in the middle of a field and provide your own shelter and do the same thing, you get an A. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that a B plus will solve 95% of the problems that people will get into, but they'll worry about camping first. Get everything you need to live with some sort of structure over your head and then worry about a portable structure. That's the order. Because you know what? You can almost always improvise a structure. You can't improvise water. You can almost always improvise a structure. You're not going to improvise food in the middle of a disaster. I can improvise cordage. If I'm in a, in a, a suburban disaster, there's all kinds of shit I can uh, improvise cordage out of. But I might be happy to improvise a rat as a steak if I get lucky. So I'm going to see to all the things that I need to live in relative comfort with a, with a roof over my head, even if it's a shitty roof, and then I'm going to worry about the roof. Very simple. 30 days of in-home prep minimum. If you can have food, water, your basic sanitation and health, Your basic energy. This is not a 30-day non-stop running a giant backup generator so you can live life like normal for 30 days. If you can do that, go for it. I have nothing against it at all. 25K backup generator with 5,000 gallons of propane on it. Good. Go nuts. But that's not what most people can do. But the basics... Being able to keep your cell phones charged, being able to communicate with people, run a laptop for a couple hours, a little bit of entertainment for the kids, basic lighting so you can get around. Easy way to store the energy as far as gasoline. It'll take you a year to get there. So what? If you can't afford it, just do it. Take a year to get there. Today is your first step in energy preparedness, or sometime in the next week. Go to the store and buy a five-gallon gas can. The next time you fill up your gasoline in your car, fill the gas can, and since this is the fourth month of the year, write a big number four with a Sharpie on all sides of that gas can so you don't forget it, and go take it somewhere it's safe to store gasoline on your property and stick the can there. Yeah? Okay? Next month, do it again and write a five on it. 
and then a six, and a seven, and eight, and nine, all the way to twelve. And keep doing it until you get it to three. So next March. Okay? When you get to the four, today, sometime in that April of 2016, when you take your car or your truck or your minivan or whatever you drive to the gas station, dump that five gallons in your car, fill the car, fill the gas can with the number four on it, put it back where it came from. You'll have 60 gallons of gas on store all the time, automatically being rotated every month. You don't even need stabilizer for that. Your gas is good for a year. Especially when you're only using five gallons at a time mixed into a full tank. Stable would be a good idea, but you don't need it. It'll work just fine that way. See how simple that is? Now, that's not ordering a can, a, 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 what do you call it, a, a pallet of MREs delivered on a semi-truck with a forklift to your garage and looking like a moron. That's not storing 800 buckets of, of rice and beans that you'll never eat. That's basic common sense. 60 gallons of gas, how long can I idle a car with 60 gallons of gas? How much energy can I produce from an 800-watt uh, inverter I bought for $49.95 on Amazon with 60 gallons of gas, plus keeping my car full? Oh, do I have two cars? Oh, guess what? Both of them should be kept near full at all times. Wow, look at that energy. Look at the amount of energy that represents. Cheap. Again, there's never been a time in history where it's been that inexpensive and comparative to our labor to store that much energy that easily for that long. And once you're done with a year of that, guess what? There's no additional expense. You're going to put the gas in your car anyway. It's going to go in your car anyway. If your car holds 20 gallons and it's next year and I dump 5 gallons in, and the car was empty, which it shouldn't be, but if it was, it's still going to take me 20 gallons to fill the can in the, in the car. It doesn't cost me any extra money after the first year. Now, if I buy a little generator, a little Honda 1000 or 2000 generator, I can really do a lot for a month with that. I really can. That's a later prep. But have 30 days. Just be able to say, if I went outside and shut off the main and took the keys and put them in a lockbox and said, for 30 days we have no power, we have no running water, we can't leave, but we're going to be okay on day 30. Might be miserable, might stink a little bit, but we're going to be okay. Might have a bunch of piles of poo in the backyard in, in garbage bags that the garbage man's not going to be happy with when services are restored, but we're going to be okay. Nobody's going to be sick, nobody's going to be dying. If they wouldn't have been anyway. That's enough for 99% of needs that we'll ever have. And if we had that as a core ethic in our society today, the potential to have a bigger disaster would largely be mitigated because society would remain stable during these intermittent breakdowns. Know your neighbors in good times. Please develop community and relationships with your neighbors now, not when you need them later. Have routes out of your area planned. Have a documentation package. Everybody you would call, who you would call, when you would call them, multiple copies in your car. Keep financial information coded simply. If, if your bank account number was 1234, I don't know, make it 3456 and know the offset of the number. Okay, have the information, have it in multiple copies, one in every vehicle, keep it in an electronic copy on something like a USB drive you keep on your keychain. Have multiple routes, how would I get out? 
Have everybody in the family that drives familiar with the routes. Have kids that don't drive familiar with the routes. Because if their child at least has someone else with them who's looking after them, and they need to, to, to reunite with you, they can tell that other responsible adult how to get there. Have ways to communicate. Stay aware of your local and national risks. Pay less attention to the presidential campaign or the threat of ISIS living, making a bomb in your closet and more attention to the fact that you are damn near near riot levels in some cities in this country right now this minute or that there are storms brewing right now out west that could turn severe at any time. Pay attention to that stuff. Focus on the likely over the sensational. Losing your job, having your house burned down, major weather events, trucker strikes, economic instability, not the end of the world as we know it, the economy of the United States is gone forever. No, it's 2008 all over again, only this time worse. These are the likely scenarios we're going to deal with. And this is being responsible as an adult especially when others depend on you. I know I might have gotten off track a little bit today, or not really off track, but a little bit over the top, a little bit in your face, a little bit, I'm sorry you weren't taught this when you were in seventh grade and we should be teaching it, but it's just because it's true. It outrages me. It outrages me that I live in what's supposedly the most advanced and prosperous and supposedly free nation on God's green earth. That everybody's so proud to wave the flag, the red, white, and the blue, and talk about how great it is here, But the average person in here couldn't survive in their homes with relative comfort for one freaking week if you turned off the lights and didn't let them leave. And we have the potential for that to happen to a small number, to a large number, to everybody at any given time. That we have so much to lose and so little interest in preserving it. Because that's what preparedness is about. Preparedness is not really about being prepared to deal with a situation when you've lost everything. It's about being prepared to deal with situations so that you do not lose everything. It's common sense. It's being a responsible adult. And you're worth it, and your family's worth it, and the people that control the society would prefer nothing better than for you to, real, to ne never realize that's the case. If the people that had control of this country gave a shit about you, they would be telling you the very things that I've told you today. They wouldn't be paying lip service to a 72-hour kit and showing you some bullshit about a diaper bag with a bottle of water in it. They would teach you real preparedness. They would see it as a civic imperative. This is a method of civil defense. But they don't care. Because they would much rather have you dependent. They see you like the wild ducks at the lake. Feed you long enough, clip your wings for a few generations, and the wild will be born domesticated, never knowing that they are actually wild. Never seeing to their own needs. The self-sufficient will become the dependent. And the dependent are easy to control. The dependent are easy to tax. The dependent are easy to bleed of their wealth. That's what preparedness is about. Taking your individual sovereignty as a human being back, to value it enough to preserve it for yourself and to teach your children and your community to do it for themselves and for those that will fail to do so, to be there with a hand up when they need it most, 
to teach them so next time around they're standing there alongside of you instead of in front of you asking for help. And none of it's hard, and none of it's expensive, and none of it's complicated. It's dramatically simple. You're a human being made of flesh and blood and bone. And just like the humans you see in pity all over this planet when they go they go hungry, when they go thirsty, when they suffer from disease, when they suffer from war, when they suffer from disaster, you have this illusion that somehow they're different than you. They're exactly the same. The mother that grieves for the child crushed under the weight of a cinder block home in Haiti is no different than the mother that grieves for the loss of a child who was killed by a predator who broke into her home. They grieve for the same reason. The difference is we actually have a unique opportunity because we do have so much more than others to preserve that which we have through very simple, uncomplicated means. But we've lost the intelligence necessary to act on it. We've become so full of ourselves in a belief that we're so great that we've lost our self-preservation instinct to make sure that we stay that way. I don't prepare because I have fear. I prepare because I do not wish to have fear. I do not prepare due to fear of loss. I prepare so that I will not fear loss. I do not prepare because I value myself above others. I prepare because I value others above myself. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is 